This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, I'm Matt Chorley and this is Politics Without the Boring Bits. Massive thank you to all of you who got in touch over Christmas as we looked back over some of our favourite moments and our best bits from last year. We are back with all new, brand new content as all the politicians relaunch their slightly old content for the big election year. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email me matt at times.radio. Matt at times.radio with any questions or comments or complaints or queries. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Coming up on today's episode of the podcast, we've got a brand new series of the exit interviews. Well, there's dozens of MPs standing down ahead of the next election. We ask them, why are they leaving? What are they going to do now? And any advice for their successors? On today's episode, Mari Black, she arrived at the age of 20 in the House of Commons as the youngest MP, SNP MP. She's quitting before she's even reached 30. A really fascinating interview. Surprisingly honest, actually, it has to be said, about some of her party leaders, including Nicola Sturgeon. So that's coming up in just a moment. We'll also have a taster of the How to Win an Election podcast. A little snippet of that. For the full thing, you need to go hop on over to How to Win an Election, wherever you're listening to this. And if you like what you hear, you can join me for Politics Like the Boring Bits live on Times Radio, on your DA radio on your smart speaker or download the times radio app that's politics without the boring bits weekdays from 10 and we begin the new year as we ended it with a brand new jingle from jillian david swimming to the left swimming to the right a big election's on the way with no safe seat in sight Spinning for the left, spinning for the right A jolly, jolly split the book when he comes on stage tonight A jolly's a pole dancer who knows the art of spin Persuading you to take a chance and cast your vote for him A jolly to win Majorly to win Whether Labour, Tory or Lib Dem Let's vote Majorly in There we are A lovely, lovely jingle from Gillian David 
it's slightly too long. Uh, Gillian David's uh, jingle. This this one is for my stand-up show, Pole Dance. So I'm going right around the country this year. Bristol, Swindon, Salford, Maidenhead, Hemel Hempstead, Birmingham, Chorley. Yes, Chorley and Chorley. Exeter, Cambridge, Farnham, Taunton, London and Lyme Regis. We'll hopefully try and add some more uh, dates to that as well. Uh, all the de- Most of the tickets are now on sale at mattchorley.com. Uh, and uh, basically... I'm going to play that jingle every hour until all the tickets have sold. So you might as well get online and uh, uh, um, and get that ordered. In fact, while you're at mattjolly.com, you can enter my election predictor. This is a real test of how much you're paying attention to politics. How many seats will each party get? You go to mattjolly.com, go to the election predictor, enter your guesses, and when we have the election, you will win... Nothing, uh, but plenty of bragging rights as we hurtle into a big election year. Talking of which, yes, we can podcast. Strike up the band. Politics really matters a lot, and it's certainly not a game. They used to say that I was Nick Clegg's brain. Sunak's campaign. He's designing a campaign which is all wokey-cokey. Yeah, here we are again then, doing the wokey-cokey. I'm Matt Jolly. This is How to Win an Election, your insider's guide to the huge political year ahead. Uh, joined, as ever, by new Labour architect Peter Mandelson. Hello, Peter. Hi, Matt. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Uh, Polly McKenzie, otherwise known as Nick Clegg's brain, and Policy McKenzie is here. Also, uh, Nigella Lawson fangirl, who has brought Christmas cake. You have bought Christmas cake. How are you cake. finding it? It's nice. It's quite I boozy. It's quite boozy. Yeah, Danny has refused to have my Christmas cake, so I'm not going to talk to him, right, just right. to let you know. It's his New Year's resolution. Yeah. Is, yeah. What, is, what is to not eat any more... after tomorrow. Not, not eat any more of Polly's cake. Just to try not to eat anything that I don't absolutely have to eat. Right. Oh, Dan, Danny's also here. Tommy Brainbox, Danny Finkelstein's here. Uh, Happy New Year to you all. If you want to get in touch, you can email us howtowin at times.radio. Howtowin at times.radio uh, with all of your questions. So, uh, it's a new year. It's been called the biggest year for democracy since democracy began or something because uh, more than a third of the world's population will go to the polls in some form in 2024. Uh, we'll look at some of those uh, elections happening abroad in a moment. First of all, let's start back here. Big election year. Could be the autumn, could be May. Uh, everyone still settled on when, when they think it's going to be? I'm still a possible May man. Yeah. Yeah, and I still think it'll... You know, they should go in May, but they won't. They'll go in, in the autumn. Well, the, the government has now briefed out that it will certainly be next year. Which gives me even more confidence. This year, it'll be. This sorry. Year. Oh yeah, that's what they said it last year. <laughs> what? But you still think it might I'm be 2025? It might just cling on. Well, yeah, because they, they were so clear that it will definitely be in 2024, but didn't specify when. Yeah, I, I don't trust them. Should Should Rishi Sunak rule out publicly a May election if he's not going to do one, or risk the sort of Gordon Brown, Bottler Brown thing? That if, if if the idea that he's going to go in May gets legs, is that is that a risk for him? He should make sure to brief out that it's unlikely. <laughs> so, so as not to build up a head of steam, but he shouldn't rule it out altogether because he doesn't want to close down his options. He should if he doesn't want to go he'll he hold an election when it's in the best interest of the country. Yeah, but the problem then is... Is, is Matt's right. <laughs> that, that, that if you allow a story to build and build and build, you get trapped into sort of having not called an election you never intended to call. 
I think Labour is certainly thinking that way. They're quite enjoying stoking up the idea that there's going to be a mayor election. They're the ones briefing out that it's going to happen because for them it's win-win. Either they'd quite like to do it quite soon, frankly, or they get that the bottom. What gave it legs, though, Polly, was the calling the budget for March the oh, 6th. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm. And that seemed to pave the way for an early election being called at the end of March for May. Um, I mean, I think that Sunak will be sort of punished either way. You know, if he rules out May, then the sort of running down the clock, the countdown begins, the media will be chasing him all over the place, yeah, all the way to the autumn. Um, if he doesn't rule it out and people are sort of left in sort of... Expectant expectation. I, I look either way. It's not great for him, but I wouldn't start speculating if I were Sunak about when the when the elections. Going I mean, to we've be. we've we've because you, you've posed this question to us, we've answered it a few times. Wouldn't you both agree that I mean, although we've each got our own choices of when you'd hold the election and which would be marginally better, it is quite marginal. I think. Where, where I always think when people start to start talking about turnout effects and the effects of dates and you know whether it matters whether the local elections is before or after a date, these things do matter a bit. I think they are pretty much. My guess well, would be pretty marginal. The mayor, the mayor, election, local government elections. If they are a disaster, they'll be very motivating for the Conservative sure, Party. It's, a a, it's not a lovely backdrop against which to launch an autumn campaign. But I also think the public are getting increasingly no. fretful mm. and irritated uh, by the their expectation or their knowledge that an election is going to come this year. They're feeling that it is necessary uh, to start a new chapter and that's been deliberately postponed yes. Uh, by uh, uh, by by the Tories for their own self interest. So that's why I would. That's why, and that's why I argue, as you know, that they would be better off having a May election for all those reasons. But I wouldn't say the effect will be that big compared to the other things that we've discussed and we will discuss that will influence the results, the outcome of the election. It's 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 an it's an it has an impact, I, but I would say it was marginal. Yeah, I think that's almost certainly true, unless something big happens. And I think the Conservatives are hoping that something big might happen that, that shifts the political uh, atmosphere. But, of course, it could be a thing that makes life better for them, but it could just yeah. as easily be a catastrophe that makes life worse for them. I think what's more important both for Starmer and Sunak is not to speculate about when the election is going to be, but to start sort of framing in their minds what the question is that they want to see uppermost in the voters' mind as they go into the polling booth whenever the election is called. And that framing should start now, indeed, I gather it's going to start this week because both of them are going to make speeches. They're all out and about. So, yeah, well, Keir Starmer's going to make a speech. Uh, Rishi Sunak is going to go and speak to real people. He, they're going Very to let, risky, Rishi, let Rishi be Rishi. Um, which we were sort of at that point in the doom loop of uh, somebody who's a long way behind in the polls where we were told to let Gordon be Gordon, let Ed be Ed. Um, go out and meet... Don't talk to the media. We've got to go and speak to real... If only everyone could meet Rishi Sunak in person. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and Gordon met Gillian Duffy in that, Rochdale. Can I ask this question of both of you, because it's more difficult for me because I know and like him, to judge this. Do you think that's good advice to Rishi Sunak? <clears throat> so to Gordon Brown, I didn't think it was very good advice, let Gordon be Gordon, because I, or, and it certainly wasn't very good advice to Ed Miliband. Let Ed Miliband be Ed Miliband. I mean, it's all that try you can and, do. Try it's and all start you... the year being a little fair <laughs> no, no, to Ed Miliband, <laughs> will you, Danny? <laughs> no, it, what I'm saying is it's all you can do, um, uh, and... Um, you know, it was also the, the, the problem for my, um, you know, somebody I very, very much admire, William Haig. It wasn't letting William Haig be William Haig, which was all that you could do. It wasn't going to 
move people. Do you think that if Rishi Sunak does get across his personality, it's a plus for him? In other words, this advice, let Sunak be Sunak, get across to real people. Let, let's put aside the question of whether, you know, he should or shouldn't do that. Let's assume that he does it. Would that help him? But I think we're jumbling up two things. The, the let Sunak be Sunak, let Bartlett be Bartlett thing, right, um, is, is one thing that you, you cannot, in the end, make a... A, a person with, a, you know, one kind of character be different. You can't make Boris Johnson do his red box at night. You can't make uh, Keir Starmer very funny. You know, that y- you can only be your authentic self and you're probably best when you do that. But why is that the same as get out and talk to the voters one-to-one? Because, you know, someone like Bill Clinton was amazing mm. one-to-one, Magic. greeting people, Magic. doing town halls, could change the mood of a room and, and you would get footage of, of that personableness. Rishi Sunak's authentic character has many strengths to it, but they're not personableness with members of the public that he meets in the street. So I, I, I just don't understand why the well, two I things agree, have been equated. I agree with Polly. I think that if Sunak does this, he will come across as he usually does when he's with people, sort of awkward and rehearsed. Okay, so. I, I mean, I think that's the problem. I think he's got to do something rather different. I think he's got to construct a case for Sunak, for his government, and for the re-election of the Conservative Party. And he needs to start that this week. So the, the, there's this thought that this all comes from this let Bartlett be Bartlett. But in fact, it comes from, from let the West, Reagan. For the it West comes, well, it, which yeah. it doesn't. It comes from let Reagan be Reagan. And let Reagan be Reagan, which was the original use of this phrase, was a, a, a campaign, proposition, a campaign by the right in the Conservative Party against his more centrist advisers that Reagan should be his authentic conservative self. Let Reagan be Reagan. The reason that I think let Ed Miliband, for example, be Ed Miliband is I think authentically Ed Miliband was well to the left of where he then decided to present himself and therefore it wasn't good advice for him. And I think also with Gordon Brown, uh, letting Gordon Brown actually be what he really was would have also moved him, you know, against, um, against, for example... uh, the, the agenda of sort of more austere spending that Alistair Darling uh, put in place. So it was not discipline. good advice no, to, the, to him. And the question about whether letting Sunak be Sunak is good advice is not so much let Sunak be Sunak uh, would make him look awkward. It's the question of where, whether him expressing his authentic politics D- Danny, would what good. would it be? Exactly, that's Sunak. exactly the well, question. What would it be? We've already got that a slight exactly problem the in the, him going out and being completely spontaneous with members of the public on Thursday. We've been told in advance what he's going to say because they've briefed the Times today, Tuesday, which sort of slightly undermines the idea he's just going to spontaneously yes, but I don't think that's what it today. means. I think, I think letting Sunak be Sunak, as far yeah. as I was concerned, would be to let him... St- say what he really thinks. So what do I think his actual politics are? I think he is quite small state conservative. Uh, so he's a fiscal conservative. And I've always said to him, you're a fiscal conservative like I am, but you're at a lower level of public spending and tax than I am. I think he's relatively socially liberal. I think he's quite conventional in terms of the rule of law and not and not doesn't have a populist uh, uh, position. So he'd be resistant on to make, for example, woke... Uh, the wokey-cokey, um, <laughs> the, uh, in which he'd be more likely to be out than in. Um, 
he's less likely to make that as a sort of centerpiece. Um, I think some of this tech bro stuff that he's accused of, he regards as an asset and would project. So the question is whether that combination, yeah. uh, given the Conservatives' position, is really a viable one for him. It probably isn't. Polly, do you think Rishi Sinat would be doing better if he'd got Dominic Cummings on board, as we discovered he discussed at the weekend of the Sunday Times? Well, I, th I think there's, there's two aspects to that. The first is, would he be better in terms of his policy stance? You know, as, as far as Cummings has briefed it out, it's something to do with cutting taxes and putting more money into the NHS, which was the sort of reality-defying <laughs> That's, what, every, that's that, what everyone wants. There was taxes of more money. Okay, well, exactly. But at the core of what, of yeah. what Boris Johnson uh, was uh, sort of attempting to, to pull off. Um, and I certainly think that from a... Uh, a political perspective that is appealing to the public it is of course not really possible to pull off and so and both as a personality level and also then in terms of setting up a policy conflict with his party i i think that he would just be struggling so badly to hold that conservative parliamentary party together if he had brought this kind of public enemy number one for quite a lot of them back into the tent, especially when he promised explicitly that he I, wouldn't. I look at it in a slightly different way. I mean, first of all, I think that bringing outsiders, you know, into the tent and asking them from, you know, they have a detachment. They can offer a helicopter view uh, and they're sometimes much better at sort of expressing a direct clear-cut view than some of the people inside the tent have, have, have grown accustomed to doing. And I think that what the Conservatives need is a clarity of purpose and strategy. They need cut-through. And that means a very clear, decisive conclusion about what sort of campaign they're going to mount, what the question is they want to be uppermost in voters' minds when they go into the polling booth. <clears throat> and I think that, you know, toxic as he is, you know, he is a fairly practised and well-experienced campaigner, uh, uh, Cummings, and I think he could bring uh, uh, that clarity. Another thing he could bring is this. What he shares with Rishi Sunak is an in intense dislike of Boris Johnson <laughs> and, and of Liz Truss. And you see, what I think about Sunak is that he's got... To get that cut through, he's got to reconstruct a narrative, a story about himself rooted in his time as Chancellor and his early time as uh, Prime Minister where he was clearing up the mess created and left for him by Johnson and Truss. Now, I think, therefore, he, in order to make the case for Sunak and all the remedial action and policies he adopted uh, after the disaster of those two prime ministers, he's got to contrast himself with those prime ministers. He's yeah. got to show what he did to clear up the mess. Now, that is not comfortable for the party, but I do think it's something that the country uh, uh, would appreciate and would like to hear. And they would much better see the case for Sunak as not Johnson, not Trust, the guy who cleared up things after they'd gone. That that would sort of come strike home to them much better than sort of, you know, are you a small state, big state, what mm. level of taxation? He's got to say something that the no. public will understand. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. And so the question is, I mean, let's soon be soon like is different from let's soon be Cummings, uh, and, I mean, uh, and, and that's that's very important, right? Because he, if you if he, you can see from the things that well, Dominic Cummings is not saying um, in, in this weekend, you know 
bring me in and um, we'll together devise a strategy that will work. He says, I've got a strategy, and if you want to adopt it, you, could, you should bring me in. Uh, but yeah. it's not the strategy that sits comfortably okay. with who that, Rishi Sunak is. That is the risk of Cummings. Uh, yes, yeah. I mean, it's, it's only one of the risks of Cummings. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but get out, to, to, just to be clear, Dominic Cummings is, is very clear thinking and clever. Uh, and, and, I, and I've, personally, I read a lot of his stuff. I find it completely con compelling. But, but he wouldn't be my first choice as my kind of aide and confidant just because of the record that he's got. Can I ask you uh, a question? He's a much Dan? better at writing these things down than he is at that. Can I ask you a question? Yes. Do you think Cummings would say to Sunak, you know, there are two variations of a theme here for your campaign. One is, you know, Britain's turning a corner. It's getting better. Don't let Labour ruin it. It's a risk with Labour but premised on Britain's sort of going in the right direction? Or should he just say, look, we all know, not say literally, we all know that Britain's gone to hell in a handcart. Um, you know, it's, it, we're in a serious situation, serious mess here. It's going to take everything, you know, we've got to throw at this to make it better, better the devil you know in the Conservatives than the devil you don't I think you would say, Britain's going to hell in a handcart, don't let Labour ruin it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so I do find it, it's a lot somewhat a problem, so it's yeah, an, yeah. an inconsistent message. Well, uh, that's, the, uh, that's the view of the UK election. Up next, we're going to take a look at some of the elections around the world. Everyone's brought in an election to talk about. So we'll do that next here on How to Win an Election. was your little taster of how to win an election to hear the full episode just hop on over to the how to win an election podcast wherever you're listening to this and make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes up next is the exit interview with Marie Black when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers and if you have a lot of mailing to do Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. The Big Thing. We've already said. Marie Black is leaving us soon. Goodbye. 
born in 1994. She was still a student at the University of Glasgow when she was elected as the SNP MP for Paisley and Renfrewshire South in 2015. So I still had a politics exam to sit, which was ironic after winning an election. In her exit interview, she assesses her many bosses, including summing up Ian Blackford in a word. See, the irony of you asking me to sum up a man who could talk for hours in one word. After all the turmoil in her party, I ask if she misses her other former leader. Nicola Sturgeon? Eh, no, not really. Not really, no. And she reflects on the weird world of Westminster. Lining up in a lobby and going through one by one and them locking the doors and then if you don't get out the lobby you get chased by the guy with the sword and all of this is just nonsense. So, Marby Black, welcome to your exit interview. A chance for us both to learn what you could have done better. First question then, why are you leaving? Uh, oh God, uh, folk will be fed up of me answering this question. Uh, I think a, a lot of it ultimately comes down to the culture of Westminster and I suppose the the pressures and the setup of it. I, I don't think it's well, certainly for me anyway. It's not sustainable to uh, to spend the rest of my life in it. Um, and I've always said that I that was never my intention, you know, and I, I never set out to have a a long career in politics, so it felt like the right time for me to sort of wind that elected side up. Let's, let's rewind right to back to the beginning then, as to how you ended up in the House of Commons at the first place, because it was in that extraordinary moment in 2015 when the SNP sort of swept the boards. You were, I remember for the first time I met you, you were what, 20, were you 20 when you were elected yep. at that point? Yeah, and you, you, you hadn't actually finished your degree either. Yeah, I, I still So had how on earth did that happen? So I still had a politics exam to sit, <laughs> which was ironic <laughs> after winning an election. Um, no, so how it came about for me certainly was the referendum. That was when SNP won the 2011 election and announced that they were going to hold a referendum. I just thought, right, this is the time to get involved. And it was myself and my dad were, we really got heavily involved in it, you know, just campaigning, knocking on doors, talking to people on high streets, arguing with taxi drivers, the, everything you could imagine. Um, so when we lost the referendum, there was that feeling of, I'm not just going back in my box here, let, let's keep the pressure on, let's hold them to account for all the things that we were promised. And folk kept saying to me, you should put your name forward. And I was like, don't be stupid, <laughs> that's, that's a ridiculous idea. But the more I argued it out with people, the more I realised that I was losing the argument. So I was selected to be the candidate and the rest is history. But it's interesting that though, because some people would think, you know, A, you were really young, B, that your aim in pursuing Scottish independence is because you think Scotland should go out alone, cut ties with Westminster. And instead you sort of did the opposite. You You threw yourself into into Westminster and that you, you, know, you were studying politics anyway. Why, why go for Westminster and not like stand for Holyrood or for a council or something that would have kept you closer to the, yeah. to the action in Scotland? Well, two things. The, the first is mainly because Westminster's where the life-changing decisions are made. And, you know, don't get me wrong, like the, the devolved parliaments 
can do a hell of a lot, you know, and I think that's something that I've argued before. I think the, the Scottish Parliament, certainly in the last 10, 15 years, has done an awful lot in the areas where it can do things. But if you want to fundamentally change the way our society functions and I suppose the barriers that are put up for people in society, then all that lies with Westminster. And the second reason why it was there was also the timing of it because we'd lost the referendum in September and the next election was May and the general election. So like I say, it was it was very much a, a campaign of let's hold them to account, let's make them work for this. And it's fair to say that almost from the moment you arrived in Westminster, there was a massive culture shock, culture clash, maybe. And mm-hmm. and you got quite a lot of grief for that at the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> I couldn't do right for doing wrong. You know, it was the attention on me was something that, in hindsight, I kind of think maybe naively I didn't expect it. This is a terrible thing, but I know it's because you tweeted a photo of it really early on. When Even if I see you in the news now, I yeah. think about chips. Because you, <laughs> and I, I mean that in the nicest possible way, yep. but it was like the biggest story in, in Westminster politics was you had some chips. I was raging at that because I'd sat down for my lunch and it wasn't me that actually tweeted it. It was my colleague, Anne McLaughlin. She sat at the table with me. And went, oh, I'm taking a photo of that. And I was like, aye, all right, cool, take a picture. I didn't realise she was going to post it. So then next thing, she did post it, and all the newspapers went in and it gets spread everywhere (laughs) that I'm having chips. Do you think that was because of your background, because you were young, because you were a woman, because you were in the SNP, a mixture of all of those things, that that sort of anything you said or did, you know, got leapt on? Yes, that's certainly how it felt anyway. Like, I remember thinking at the time when folk were saying, you know, the responsibility of this, you know, how, how are you going to cope with it? And I remember thinking, if I'd become a teacher, I still wouldn't be able to, you know, have insane nights out or be dancing on tables or, you know, d- doing all these extravagant, wild things. So it's kind of the same in that sense. But what was different was the intensity of the the sort of scrutiny and it, as well it wasn't scrutiny of my arguments or you know what I was saying a lot of it was scrutiny of what people perceived me to be which was quite difficult to grapple with. I mean let's focus on some of the, the positive things that happened when you first arrived your maiden speech yeah. just blew up like 10 million views online in a, in a couple of days. In this budget, the Chancellor also abolished any housing benefit for anyone below the age of 21. So we are now in the ridiculous situation whereby, because I am an MP, not only am I the youngest, but I am now also the only 20-year-old in the whole of the UK that the Chancellor is prepared to help with housing. <laughs> That's quite a thing to go from, you know, I got a bit involved in the independence campaign, to suddenly, like, yeah. everyone knows who you are. Because for any new MP, your maiden speech is a big deal. But obviously, when when suddenly it has been viewed 10 million times, that's an even bigger deal. See, I'm still not convinced that out of that 10 million, I think at least 5 million were my mum just repeating (laughs) it, you know. (laughs) Uh, No, it it was incredible, the response. So we get elected in May and I did my maiden speech, I think it was July. I was one of the last to do my maiden speech. And that was deliberate on my part because... First of all, I wanted a little bit of time to suss the place out a little bit and figure out how things work. But there was also an element of me where 
it was almost like I was in such demand from everybody that I wanted to have a wee bit of control and saying, no, I'm going to settle in, find my feet and I'll talk when I'm ready to talk. So that's exactly what I did and I, th- I think I made the right decision. But in doing that, I think it also kind of... <laughs> It created a, a sort of whirlwind uh, around it. You know, I remember somebody coming in and telling me, you're, you're trending first in Nigeria. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Mental. For people who don't know, maybe they've never, you know, lots of people haven't been to Parma. Yeah. What is it like as a workplace to try and get your, your head around? Because you've been pretty scathing about it in the past. Yeah. <laughs> it's a shame because I genuinely don't try to be. <laughs> it's just uh, it, my experience of it is it's such a, a world unto itself. You know, it's Parliament seems to, at every turn, do everything it can to maintain this sort of closed club feel to it, rather than it being a an open, functioning democracy that's embracing the modern age. Uh, let's talk about, um, as part of your exit interview, some of your bosses. And we'll get your assessment of the, the various bosses you've had. Uh, when you first arrived, Angus Robertson was your leader in Westminster. Sum up Angus Robertson in a word. Oh, in a word. Showman. Showman? Yeah, he's, he's very good at being uh, the centre of any party. <laughs> you know, he's, he's good at that. Uh, very good. Um, he was then obviously replaced by Ian Blackford. Sum up Ian Blackford in a word for us. Yeah. See, the irony of you asking me to sum up a man who could talk for hours <laughs> in one word, uh, I would say consistent. <laughs> okay. Because I actually did an exit interview with Ian last year. And, yeah. Um, yeah, he struggled with the sum things up in a single word. <laughs> and your, your, your current boss of Westminster, Stephen Flynn, sum up him in a word. <laughs> Baldy. <laughs> Baldy, fine. That's good. We'll take that. Um, and obviously, you know, in the in the, the dual world of being an SNP MP in uh, in Westminster, you've had other leaders in in Scotland. Yep. Sum up Nicola Sturgeon in a word. Impressive, I think. Every time that I, I've seen her in action, I've thought, yeah, I can't I can't think of many folk who can perform better than she can, uh, particularly under intense scrutiny. Um, if I'd said to you. At the beginning of 2023, by the time we got to the end of 2023, Nicola Sturgeon would be gone. Uh, the polls would have been massively shifting. Would you? Would you believe that? Honestly, uh, it probably wouldn't make any difference. Now I'm saying this because I genuinely have always thought you can't predict what's going to happen beyond <laughs> you know you're lucky if you can predict six months out. I was never expected to be elected. And then I did. Brexit was never supposed to happen. And then it did. We've had, you know, umpteen elections where it's been expected that the SNP is going to get an absolute kicking. And yet it's still, we're still there. Um, so honestly, I, I, if you told me we were going to have four prime ministers within the period of one parliamentary term. So when I'm saying I probably would have believed you, not because I think it was obvious things were pointing that direction, but just because I think politics in Britain is just so wild just now. <laughs> I've given up trying to predict. <laughs> Do you miss her? Who? Nicola Sturgeon. Nicola Sturgeon? Eh, uh, no, not really. Not really, no. I mean, do you mean personally or professionally? Well, yeah, or both, both. You know, do you think that you and your... Co- I mean, I don't know your, how close yeah. you were, if you miss her personally, but also, is she, you know, is she missed by the by the cause? Yes, in, a, in the sense that 
clearly there's there's stuff going on for her just now. <laughs> but no, I like I've no doubt that she'll still have a part to play in future years. And I also think it's actually quite healthy because I'm a, I'm a big believer in politics should be about policy as opposed to personality. It's interesting because some people have said that you know the the SNP had become a bit of a personality cult. The fact that it, you know that Nicola was the leader, her husband was yep. the chief executive. W- would you go that far? Was it a problem that the SNP was the Nicola Sturgeon party? For me personally, yes, it always made me uh, quite uncomfortable. But as I say, I do think she's she's certainly one of the best, if not the best performing politicians that I've seen. I've rarely seen anybody get the better of, of Nicola Sturgeon. So in that sense, uh, of course, she's a massive asset to have. Um, but yes, I, I remember I did always feel a wee bit uncomfortable with we shouldn't be relying on you know one face or one person. It should be about the movement. It should be about the vision of what we want to see change and what we want to happen. So it, there's a balance to be struck, and I'm not convinced that we always got the balance right. And obviously, obviously, there's an ongoing police investigation. Uh, she's been interviewed yeah. by the police, but released uh, without charge, as have Peter Mole and uh, and others. But overall, have you been surprised by? I mean, I was going to say, have you been surprised by the police being called in to look at the finances mm-hmm. of your party? I assume the answer to that is yes. <laughs> yeah. But what's your? Maybe you're not. Maybe you're not. Has it shocked you what's played out this year? Yes, yes, and just as you say, you know. I don't think any political party ever wants the police, you know, having a look about because, of course, the optics of that are terrible. In terms of the SNP as an organisation, yeah, I've always had my issues with how it's sort of run or how decisions have been arrived at and things. But yes, it was a surprise. It's it's a, you know not a good kind to find that your party's getting investigated, you mm. know. Which actually brings us on to um, Nicholas Sturgeon's replacement, Humza Yousaf, who I think at one point said this year, it's always a surprise when one of my colleagues is arrested, which is one of the political quotes of the year for me. Uh, sum up Humza Yousaf in a word. Oh, I would say caring. Interesting. Uh, tell me why, tell me why that is. Because, uh, so having known him, uh, I think he's, he's genuinely a warm person and the minute he's aware that something's not okay or that someone's not okay, that's the first person he'll phone. You know, and I don't know that every political leader in the UK could say that. I think he's got he's got genuine heart in him. Given what has happened this year, then given that both Nicola Sturgeon's departure clearly removes one of the big players of the SNP, and you know what has played out with the police investigation and so on has clearly you know, changed some people's views. The Labour Party looks like it's coming back uh, mm. in a way that it hasn't done for a long time. Is the dream of independence further away now than it was 12 months ago? No, I don't think so. And the, the reason I say that is because the s- support for independence is holding steady and even the latest polls had it rising uh, again a little but for me, the thing that's fundamentally where we are so much closer than we were even in 2014 is independence is now a mainstream point of view. Uh, it's particularly in Scotland, if not in the whole of the UK. Uh, I've no doubt that Scotland is definitely going to be independent. It's just a case of when and how we get our independence. 
But in terms of the dial shifting, no, I think we're closer than we were. Do you think we equipped you properly to handle your job? What, as in the times? <laughs> no, not me personally. As a, as a, do we as a country equip our politicians to be able to do their job? Well, in a lot of respects, I don't think it is your job to equip politicians. Where I think things have started to improve and should have improved is certainly how Parliament equips its new MPs. You know, because when I, when I think back, it was pretty much, you know, you get handed a parliamentary iPad and sent on your way kind of thing. <laughs> and I ha- I'm very glad I handed it right back, <laughs> let me tell you. So I, I do think that there's been a, a learning curve there for Westminster, certainly. But no, I don't, I don't think it's the job of society to equip its politicians. If anything, it's the job of society, or it should be the job of society, to better pick their candidates and their politicians. But that's a whole other <laughs> can of worms. Well, I was going to say, what do you think of the skills and qualifications that your replacement needs to have? Resilience is the first one. It's, it's funny because I, I do... I, I th- I think anyone who's, and I use air quotations here, but anyone who's normal who goes into Parliament, I think, is going to get a shock, you know, no matter where you're from, because it's such an alien existence that you have to be able to adapt and, as I say, be resilient to at least some extent to be able to survive. I mean, obviously, you consider yourself normal. How many normal MPs do you think there are? (laughs) Do you know, see when they first go in, I think there's quite a lot, but by the time the first term's over, the number drastically reduces. And again, that, that kind of comes back to my issue with Parliament, is I do think that there comes a point where if that existence in that building is the majority of your life, then you're not normal anymore and you start losing touch with reality and with what everyday people are experiencing and living through and what they think. I think it can change people a lot, you know, whether that be in terms of their own health or their own mental health or equally their personalities can change. You know, I've seen folk who you would have thought would have been the first one marching to the border with a Claymore, but now absolutely love being in London. <laughs> you know, you think, I wouldn't have expected that. You know, so, so it so is. Some, a- of your, some of your SNP colleagues actually quite like being part of the Westminster bubble. I will not specify if they are current or not, but yes, there's, I've come across ones where I've thought, hmm, you're, you know, slightly... Or you appear slightly more comfortable than I think you should be. <laughs> um, you've previously talked about Westminster being outdated, sexist and toxic. What did you dislike most about it? Oh, it's got to be the voting system. It's got to be. I think the the whole lining up in a lobby and going through one by one and them locking the doors and then if you don't get out the lobby, you, you get chased by the guy with the sword and all of this is just nonsense. Like, I remember during Brexit there was one night where the Scottish Parliament, where they had the same number of votes and it was something like, let's call it 10 votes or something, and the Scottish Parliament did it in six minutes and we spent four and a half hours on the same number of votes and it's literally just doing laps of that bloody chamber and you think we could get so much more done in this time but instead... Do you think it it even affects mindset you said it you know people change their personalities change but if you're walking through the lobbies and i don't know voting on maybe it's the budget 
Mm -hmm. Or, you know, you're supposed to be thinking about your constituents and the world that they live in. Is it possible for you to simultaneously think about your constituency while being chased around in a big circle by a man <laughs> with a sword? Well, you see, that's it. That's the problem. Because things in Westminster happen so fast and things can change, you know, within an hour, you will often find whenever there are votes, there's whips standing at the, the lobby doors making sure you're going into the right lobby. And I used to think... How the hell can you not know what you're voting on? You're making laws. How are you not paying attention? But within a first year there, you realise, oh, it's nearly impossible to keep up with everything that's coming constantly. You think you're going down to debate one thing. Oh, no, an hour before it starts, the government's decided to pull that and they've put something else in. So uh, putting all that together then, uh, you've lasted, what, eight years? It'll be probably nine years by the time the election comes yep. around. It doesn't sound like you loved much of it. Would you recommend it <laughs> to someone else? I always give the same answer when I'm asked this, whether it's adults or in schools or whatever. I think, see if you think that you've got something that needs to be said or you think that you've got a skill and a desire to change things, then go for it. But I want people to know what the reality is like. I don't want the thought of, say, another 20-year-old coming into Parliament and expecting that it's all going to be really nice. I, I think I would feel I was doing a disservice if I wasn't <laughs> telling the truth about the place. And that's that's where I start to feel quite awkward sometimes is because, like, everything you've read out, <laughs> I tell you what I really think, you know. <laughs> it's, it's not like I, I leave any ambiguity, but that's the reality of what the place is like. So I, although I, I think it's important that folk know that reality, I also think it's never going to change unless we get different people in there. So, yes, I would encourage folk to do it. Do you regret going into the Commons when you were so young? Would it have been better for you and for the Commons if you'd been mm -hmm. 10, 20 years older? No, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Well, firstly, I, I don't regret anything really over the last... Uh, so, I, I'm going to be 30 next year, and I was elected when I was 20, so... They call it a nice 10 years, right? I also think the for Parliament to be genuinely representative, it has to look like society. And that's been one of the big problems with Westminster is it's disproportionately filled with a certain type of person. So no, I, I don't regret being 20 when I got elected because if anything, it allowed me to share a point of view that I know most of my peers would share. And of course... My peers are the ones that are now struggling to get houses, struggling to keep work or having to leave Britain altogether in order to find good work. So finally then, uh, the obvious question at the end of an exit interview, what are you going to do next? I've genuinely not got a clue, Matt. <laughs> um, well, a, a couple of things. So the first thing I want to do is take a bit of time just to breathe a little bit, you know, and, and come back down to earth. But what I've realised that I really do enjoy is I love creating and I love writing and I love communicating. So I'm kind of just looking for what opportunities present themselves. But like I, I keep saying to folk, it's really weird though that I don't know when I'm going to stop being an MP. So like I'm, I'm still in a full-time job just now. Yeah, it's, it's not like there's a, a purgatory period just because you've said you're not standing again. What's the, what's the one thing you'll miss about Westminster? Is oh, the there staff. 
No, there the is staff. the staff. Uh-huh. Aye, the, the staff are the ones that keep my sanity at bay. <laughs> you know, it's sneaking out for a ciggy with the, <laughs> the cleaners and stuff. That, that's where you get the gossip. <laughs> so, but the truth, the truth is, you you felt more comfortable with the staff than you did most of your colleagues on the green benches, didn't you? Because of your oh, background, totally. your age, and absolutely. Yeah. Again, because. Westminster and Parliament functions on such a hierarchy basis, it felt good to be with what I considered normal people, which is, to be frank, the folk that are considered usually the bottom of the rung in Westminster, as I just thought, oh, you're speaking my language, you're on my wavelength, you're right, he has mental, you know, it's that, that kind of thing. Well, here's to more normal people in politics. Marley Black, <laughs> thank you for thank joining you. us for your ex-interview. Thanks a lot. And we'll have another exit interview for you next week. Don't forget you can get in touch. You can email me, Matt, at times.radio with your questions and queries. Don't forget to enter the election predictor at mattchorley.com. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.